Everyone else, let's turn our Bibles now to 1 Peter. And we're going to continue our study in 1 Peter chapter 3, where we left off last week. 1 Peter chapter 3 can be found on page 954 in those black Bibles in the seats around you. Page 954, 1 Peter chapter 3, there's a paragraph we want to focus our attention on for this Sunday, and it's verses 13 to 17. I wonder, do you think this message will be helpful for you? Well, here's some, here's some reasons why it might be. Today's message will be helpful for you. This passage that I'm about to read and unpack for you, if you've ever struggled with peer pressure or overcommitted yourself and have a difficult time saying no, even though wisdom would say you should have said no. Today's message will be helpful for you. If your struggle is regularly with some sense of self-worth or self-esteem, your life revolves around what other people's opinions and thoughts about you are. Today's message will be helpful if you ever second-guess a decision you made because you wonder, well, what do they think about that? Or you're afraid of making a mistake because it might look, make you look bad. I think you should pay attention to this message if you've ever thought if people knew who you really, really were, some of them might think you're putting on a show, that you're a fake, you're an imposter. Today's message might be helpful if you easily get embarrassed. If you started a diet, joined the gym, took a medication, or had a procedure, not for good health, but just for compliments from other people. Have you ever told a lie that made you look just a little bit better than the truth? Or covered up something you felt a lot of shame about? Have you been jealous of someone, the way they look, the possessions they have, or their status? Today's message will be helpful if you think you've made it. Because when you look around, you feel pretty good about yourself. This list comes from Ed Welch's very helpful book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. It's a selection from a whole list of reasons why people struggle with the fear of humans, of mankind, and their opinion instead of thinking about God. When people are big and when God is small. Let's read our text and see the contrast that Peter makes between the fear of humans when they seem big versus the honor and reverence for Christ. Verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, 
Do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And this ends our reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And my prayer is that Christ would be big in your heart. Amen? The big idea is a question. What would it look like if Christ were to be big and everyone else in the world would seem small in comparison? What would that look like? What would it look like if Christ's holiness and your hope for heaven was really big and earthly status Earthly wealth, compliments from others, persecution from non-Christians. Painful, relevant, but small in comparison. What would that look like? I want to give you five things to answer that question from our text. We're just going to walk through the text and give you five answers to our question. What would it look like if Christ were big? And I'll give you them in advance and then repeat them again and again. So that hopefully by the end of our time, you'll be richly instructed with God's word for answering this question. Here they are, all out front. Number one, according to verses 13 and 14, your fear of harm will be gone. When Christ is big, your fear of harm and suffering will be gone. No one will be able to harm you, ultimately. Number two, your hope in the gospel of Christ will be constant. Number three, according to verse 15, your defense of Christ will be gentle and respectful. Number four, your conscience, it will be good. Your conscience will be good. And number five, your suffering will be for good. I'm not trying to be over clever or cute. I just really want to walk through this text and give you these five answers. Starting in verses 13 and 14, the answer to the question, what would it look like if Christ were big in your heart, your life, our church? Answer number one. According to verses 13 and 14, your fear of being harmed or suffering would be gone. Verse 13 asks a rhetorical question. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The rhetorical answer is no one. No one can harm you if you're zealous for what is good. And there's two ways to read it, and both of them come to the same conclusion, which is if Christ is big, you're not going to be afraid of harm because no one can harm you. Either because if you're so zealous for good, most people in the world will see your good deeds and they will be happy about your kindness and your love and they're not going to repay evil for good or, or give you persecution for doing good deeds. If you're just overly generous, most people will be like, thank you, even if they don't love Jesus. Just can be glad that you're kind, 
That's one way to read the text. I think that's probably the best way to read it. But there is a second way. Notice that the word begins in verse 13 with now, because he just said what he did from his quotation of verse 34 and says that whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. And then notice that the way he says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face is against those who do evil. Meaning, if your security in Christ is sure, then no matter what someone does to you, you at the end will be blessed with your eternal reward. So then, if someone were to take away your earthly possessions, would you lose your heavenly ones? No. Can they take away what really matters to you? No. So really, either way you interpret this text, and those are the two main ways. I think the first one's better. I think he's saying rhetorically, if you're kind, people are going to be so thankful. But even if you're kind and people aren't thankful, they can't steal your blessing away. That's what verse 14 says. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And based on our reading from Luke chapter 6, there's a reason we read that earlier in the service. I think Peter is meditating on the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. He's thinking about the teaching of Jesus, and he's saying it in his own words here, that if people persecute you, great is your reward in heaven. That's the blessing he's talking about. So if you suffer for obeying Jesus, you can have confidence that no matter how bad this life gets, blessing with eternal reward. So nobody can harm you. Ultimately, do you guys remember the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1 when he's deliberating? You know what I'd really like to do? Be with you all. But you know what I want even more? Being with Jesus. For me to live is serving Jesus Christ. But to die would be gain. Friday, I got an email that Pastor Tim Keller, 72 years old, died from cancer. And all reports are that he was faithful to his last breath, saying, I just want to be with Jesus. Is that you? Do you have confidence that even when you're staring death in the face, you can be on your deathbed. It could smack you in the face today. Today is your last day on earth. Do you have confidence? that your eternal reward, the blessing of following Jesus, will never be taken away. Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. If the gospel is big, if Jesus' promise is just the biggest thing you're thinking about this week, death itself cannot steal your joy, your hope, and it won't affect your attitude to sin. If anything, it will fuel righteousness and zeal for good works. That's the first thing. What will it look like if the truth of the gospel, your forgiveness of sins, your salvation in Jesus Christ was the most prominent idea that you woke up to tomorrow morning? Death would stink. It's not pleasant. But the blessing that comes, the reward, the gain that comes through death or any suffering will not be taken away. Number two, what would it look like if Christ were big and everyone around you was small? Answer, your hope in Christ would be constant. This is from verse 15. 
But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Always ready to explain why you have hope in the holy lordship of Jesus Christ. Constant hope in Christ. The word defense here is a legal term for somebody being in the courtroom. But I do not believe, based on the timing of when Peter probably wrote this, that he's talking about actual courtroom proceedings. I think he's using it as a metaphor. Every day is a courtroom. And informally, the jury is watching you. It could be your spouse, like chapter 3 says, husbands and wives. It could be your boss or workplace, like chapter 2 said, where slaves and masters have to live out their calling. It could be the government officials, like chapter 2 said in verses 13 to 17, talking about our submission to government institutions and authorities. Wherever you're at, whatever position you find yourself, you're in a courtroom and you're being judged, you're being watched. The question is, how much is that affecting your day-to-day -day thinking and decision-making? The clothes you wear, the thoughts you have, the money you spend. Did you purchase something recently because you were afraid of what somebody might say to you and you were putting your hope in how you dress or what kind of car you drive or what sort of status symbols you have in society? Are you able to take a stand for the truth of the gospel, constantly hoping in the good news of Jesus. It may not seem obvious to you all, but when Shannon came up and read to us this text, it is based upon a story that's going on in the book of Isaiah. So we don't have to think about an illustration. There's actually one baked into this text, and it's from Isaiah 7 all the way to Isaiah 8. And the context of what Peter is doing is saying, there was a time where the nation of Israel was two, northern and southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was threatening to come and advance and take out the southern kingdom. The threat of war and violence was imminent. And Isaiah 7, 2 says this, the heart of King Ahaz and the heart of all of the people in the southern kingdom, it shook like the trees of the forest were shaking before a violent wind. Have you ever been scared? Have you ever wondered, like, are we going to make it? Is another bank going to collapse in America? Can we trust the economy? Should we all go into Bitcoin? What, what's going to happen? Do you ever have these thoughts about fears and insecurities for the future, whether it's with money, whether it's with World War III, nuclear holocaust of destruction everywhere? This is the context of Isaiah 7 and 8. War, danger, imminent threat. And this is what God says through the prophet Isaiah. This is what Shannon just read for us. For the Lord spoke to me. His strong hand was upon me. And he warned me not to walk in the ways of the people. And he said, do not fear what they fear. That's, I think, a faithful translation of what Peter writes. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be troubled. It's exactly what Isaiah chapter 8, God says through Isaiah. But instead, 
notice the language. Yahweh shall be honored as holy. Does that sound familiar? Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread what they dread. But instead, honor Yahweh as holy. You know what's so amazing about Peter's use of Isaiah chapter 8? He doesn't say the word Yahweh. Look down at the text, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor, and what's he substitute? Christ. Honor Christ, the Lord, as holy. Some of you need to realize that what Peter just did very subtly and very succinctly is make an argument that in Peter's eyes, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, who promises to deliver the southern kingdom is none other than the second person, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Like, that God is the same as the God of Jesus Christ, the person who came and walked on this earth. That's what he's doing. This is what we would call high Christology. He has a very high view of Jesus. And if you would like to make a defense for why you have hope in Jesus Christ, and not any other religious teacher, it's because amongst all the other religious teachers in the world, bar none, none of them can make the claim that they are equal with God and then back it up. The reason you should have hope in Christ is because Christ is not just a man and a prophet and a teacher. Peter wants to remind you that the same God who delivered the southern kingdom, and he did, and preserved them, and through preserving them, kept the family line of Jesus Christ through the kingdom of David alive. And then Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life, died on the cross, and then God did not leave Jesus in the grave. He raised him from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And today, happy Ascension Sunday is today. He ascended into heaven and poured out the Spirit to encourage people to have hope in his coming return. And the whole letter of 1 Peter is for you to have hope in Jesus' resurrection, ascension, and his promised return. So hope constantly in an unchangeable, historical, verifiable fact. This week I had the privilege of listening to this amazing one-and-a-half-hour-long podcast. If you'd like to look it up and enjoy it, it's called Gospel Bound. And the host is interviewing a woman who has been a tenured scholar at a prestigious school, and she's a historian, and she's been writing books on why Christianity in America is uh, more or less not good. That's her profession. She's written books as a scholar, legit scholar, on why history of Christianity in America is not very good. And the whole podcast is about how she came to faith in Jesus Christ. And now she writes a different kind of book as a historian. What's interesting about listening to that podcast was that this woman shared that what really turned the corner for her were two things. Number one, people who would patiently help her see that everything rises and falls on whether or not did Jesus really die and then on the cross and rise again from the dead. All of you in this room, you need to answer that question. Because the world has changed ever since the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's historical, reliable, provable fact. And this historian said, well, that's for sure. So then he, she was asked by a pastor, 
what's the best accounting for the difference in the world based on the change after the resurrection of Jesus? And she said it, it, it became undeniable. The best explanation for the changes that have happened in the world is that Jesus must have been truly Yahweh, the one true God of the Old Testament, taking on bodily flesh, dying on a cross, being raised again from the dead. And then the whole world's been different because the best explanation is that he really did rise again from the dead and ascend to heaven. And she said she did all of the best study and research she could do. And she came to the realization, there's not a better explanation. So then the second reason she came to faith brings us to our third point. People gave a defense and they did it with gentleness and respect. What does it look like when Jesus Christ is big and your hope is constantly in the gospel? Answer, you're not a jerk. Your zeal for good works and evangelism do not have to look like you're going to overpower people in conversations to make sure you get your converts. In fact, you can listen to people's questions and be patient and pray, and you don't feel like you have to win every argument and lose the person. That's not what Peter's pointing to. Be ready to talk about this hope that's deeply in you, and if you lose an argument about creation, or the Old Testament, or the dating of something, and you didn't get your facts right, and you, you lost the argument. But what if you were able to keep talking to the person? What if you were able to keep showing respect and love? And this is precisely what this interview explained. She said time and time again, I would ask questions to this pastor, and he would write long emails. It's like he really cared. And then he would give me time and patience to work through my questions. And every single time I had something, he would sometimes say, I don't know, but I'll get back with you. Or here's what I think about this. And here's a good book to read. Do you see the difference between somebody who has some kind of agenda, some kind of self-esteem problem where they want to make themselves feel good and they want to do it with Jesus in their back and say, I'm better than you, so let me tell you why you're wrong and I'm right. We want nothing of that at Embassy Church. That's not good evangelism. You might be sharing the, the right gospel, but you have the wrong motives. And the right motives should be honoring Jesus Christ. He's big. You care way more about the glory of Jesus being exemplified through your gentleness, through your respect, through your love and care for the person sitting across from you. The gospel humbles us to the dust because we're admitting that when we become a Christian, we are no better than the dust of the earth. We deserve nothing. We have been given everything. We did not earn our salvation. How can we go around puffing our chests and looking down on people? But when you listen to people outside of the church, this is precisely what they think Christians are. They think they're better. Christians, they think they're better than us. No, never. Should never be. Christians are people who have found a savior. We have a loving, merciful God who has saved us by his grace. And that's why we're here today to be instructed, encouraged, built up, to make Jesus big in our hearts so that way we're not insecure in these conversations when people ask, hey, why are you wasting your time on Sunday morning? Aren't there better things to do? I was thinking about this very practical example. I've had this conversation a number of times with several people, even in this church. 
Have you ever been made fun of because you've chosen to either not allow your children to have a smartphone at the age of five or seven? Or you as a grown man or woman have decided, I'm gonna get a dumb phone. I don't wanna be distracted by the world and all its temptations on the internet and just out of my pocket. And then you go around and then somebody who doesn't know you and doesn't know why, they start making fun of you. What in the world kind of phone is that? Be reviled because of your pursuit of holiness, of godliness. When Christ is big and you're like, I don't care. All I care about is being holy like my savior Jesus. And I don't want anything to get in the way. And if this phone is a stumbling block, then I don't need it. You see the difference between a big God in your heart, hoping in the gospel, pursuing holiness and honoring Jesus, versus someone who cares about what everyone thinks about them. There, there's a kind of, of gentleness and respectfulness in our evangelism that should mark us as believers here at Embassy. I hope that it's clear to you that at Embassy, we gather regularly downstairs at 1015 on a weekly basis in order to encourage each other in the spread of the gospel. We care about the lost, but we care about them not just that we beat them over the head with truth, but that we preach the truth in love and with grace, because our message is one of grace. That's reason number three. Your fear and harm is gone. Your hope in Christ is constant. Your defense of Jesus Christ when people ask you about the hope that is in you is gentle and respectful. Number four, your conscience is good. That's what verse 16 says, having a good conscience. Now, there's two things I think I need to explain to you. First, what's a conscience? And second, why is Peter talking about having a good conscience? So, in order, first, what's a conscience? Do you all think of that, like, cartoon picture? That's normally what I think of, especially growing up as a kid. I did read cartoons. And so you'd have, like, the, the white angelic voice that's speaking into your ear. You should do this. This would be good. And then you have this, like, red pitchfork demon kind of picture and they're like saying you should not do that you should do this and that would be better and then there's like this battle back and forth and people like see that little voice in your head that's being depicted by this cartoon of like these two voices and one's telling you to do good and one's telling you to do bad that's typically what people think of when they think of conscience and in some ways it's not incorrect but in many ways that's woefully short the word conscience appears 30 times in the new testament it's an idea that was very prominent in the Greco-Roman kind of society, or the, the Roman Empire. So this is, I think, the New Testament authors taking a good, helpful concept and then applying it for their teaching in the Bible. And here's Peter doing it right here, having a good conscience. And the conscience, in short, to define it, is your ability to determine what's good and bad. If you want just a simple definition. It's not necessarily a voice in your head, it's your ability to have a sense or awareness of that's good and that's bad. And all of you have that. All of you have some kind of moral compass. Or I like the best image is scale, like a, a weight scale. So if you wanted to say, how much do you weigh, Pastor Phil? And you'd step on a scale and say, you weigh this much. Now, what if the scale's broken? That's what Peter's talking about. 
If a conscience is a scale that helps you know this is good and this is bad, some of you need to realize that repeatedly the New Testament, when it's talking about conscience, says it could be a good conscience, it could be a seared conscience, it could be a bad conscience. Meaning, you walk around every single day and you make assessments and judgments like a scale and sometimes they're accurate. Oh, that's good, that's lovely, that's beautiful. That is terrible, I hate that. That's not good, that's not beautiful, that's not true. That's your conscience at work. It's working all the time. In fact, it's working right now. Some of you might be thinking, that sermon's terrible, it's not faithful to scripture, or I don't like it. That's your conscience. So why is Peter talking about it? Because he wants you to be zealous for good works. He wants you to live faithfully in this world, even in the midst of suffering. And if suffering comes into your life and you immediately think, this is bad, God must be punishing me, or I must be doing something wrong, then your conscience is bad. Because that's not true. Just because you're suffering does not necessarily mean that God's punishing you. It does not necessarily mean that you did something wrong and therefore God's going to get you. That's a bad conscience. It's like you stepped on the scale and it says, Phil, you weigh 500 pounds. Whoa, that's wrong. That's way off. Sometimes our consciences are way off like that. And then sometimes it's off by like five or 10 pounds. It's just slightly off. And even then, that's devastating. It's kind of helpful to know. I actually want to know the truth. I want to know what's really right about the thing that's being determined here. And there's thousands of examples every day about conscience that you could think of. And I think the best way for us to address them is for you to be in a personal, committed relationship with another member of this church where they love you, they trust you, respect you, and you work through the fine-tuning details of recalibrating the scale of the morality in your heart. This is the mission of our church. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ by making disciples to the ends of the world and to all nations. The discipleship process could be summed up in this way, recalibrating your conscience, aligning yourself with the teaching and the ways and the works of Jesus. So I have to ask the question for all of you. Are you willing to admit and acknowledge that your conscience might be bad? that there could be an inundation of certain ideas or values through, through the world, through culture, that you have just kind of assumed, and then you think, huh, God's holding out on me. God's capricious. He's a tyrant. He, he doesn't love me. He's not good to me. Because that value of God is ultimately related on your assessment of what you think is good and bad. And so now you're critiquing God with a faulty scale. Perhaps this is why we supremely need the Bible. Because it is the true scale. It is the true test of whether or not your scale is accurate or inaccurate. And my job is to, as best as possible, to work through, verse by verse, the Bible. And then as you hear it, you recalibrate. And then as you apply it in day-to-day, week-to-week, one-on-one relationships, you fine-tune it so that as best as possible, when you look out in the world, you see good and bad, true and false, beautiful and ugly. There are things in this world that are false, that are ugly, 
that are bad. And one of those things is our last and final point. That suffering is God's punishment. That's false. When God in Christ is big, people will be small, and you can suffer for good. Verse 17 says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I think here in verse 17, he's summarizing everything he's been trying to say, really in the whole letter, but especially as it relates to suffering. Christians, expect that God will allow suffering to take place, even when you didn't do anything wrong. It is not punishment. God is not out to get you. He is not trying to withhold from you. There is a stark, huge, mile-wide difference, but only could be told and understood if you have a right, calibrated, biblical conscience. A difference between one who is suffering as a discipline and one who is suffering as a punishment. Huge, huge difference. Christians, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have repented of your sin, you've put your hope and faith in the gospel, the good news that Christ has died for you, the righteous for the unrighteous, verse 18 is about to say, to bring you to God, if that's you, then you can have confidence that there is never, not once, not ever, going to be any suffering that you experience as a punishment from God. You can just wipe that out. All punishment has happened on the cross when Jesus died for you. Therefore, any kind of fatherly, loving discipline to make you holy is a completely different category. Recalibrate your thinking, your conscience about suffering as a Christian. God necessarily means to allow certain suffering in your life to make you holy. Turn, turn your Bibles just one page over, 1 Peter chapter 1. This is a good reminder. We covered this a few weeks ago. Several of you told me this point really struck home, and I want to then reiterate it. Verse 6, chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, and then here's the phrase, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You rejoice in trials and suffering because you know that God has allowed it, if it be his will, that you would suffer for doing good to make you holy. And that may not even be a discipline. It could just be a reality. It's not like I sinned and therefore God's disciplining me with this persecution. Remember that story last week that I mentioned with Pastor Brandon and somebody attacking him in his home? Should he be trying to think through, well, what did I do last week to deserve this kind of punishment from God? No. He should understand that it's normal that if you're doing good work in the gospel, people might attack you and persecute you. And these things are necessary in a fallen world. So, is your suffering for good, or is your suffering because of your sin? 
it's extremely important to understand not only the difference between suffering, that is punishment versus discipline, but suffering that is the result of you sinning and suffering that is the result of you serving Jesus. I think this would be an excellent thing for you to think through every single time a trial occurs. Sometimes you can't do it in the moment, but certainly after the fact. Take time to reflect, to have conversations, to pray. God, why is this trial in my life? And then look through, is it because you've sinned? Is the difficulties you're dealing with right now in your life a direct result of something that you foolishly did? Well, Peter's saying, there's no credit, there's no glory, there's no pat on the back for enduring suffering when it's, well, you've put yourself in this situation. This is just the result of your sinful choices versus somebody who is enduring suffering and all they did was pursue with zeal the glory of God and his righteousness, honoring Jesus and making him big in their hearts. I want to make sure that it's clear to you all that the key idea of this passage is honor, revere the holiness of Jesus in your heart, that you're filled with constant hope, and that when that is big, all other things, fear of harm, the way you defend the gospel, the way you calibrate your conscience and the way you think about suffering, they'll make a huge difference in each of these areas. So I think this is what it looks like. When Christ is big, you're not afraid to die. You have constant hope. You're always ready to give it a defense, but do it with gentleness. Your conscience is continually, daily being recalibrated to know what's good, especially what's good as it relates to the truth of suffering and sin in this world. So, let's conclude our time with a word of prayer. Giving thanks to God for this instruction in his word, that he might apply it into our hearts and lives. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we bow our heads before the throne of heaven before the Holy Son of God, Jesus Christ, our King, our Lord. And we give you thanks. So many of us in this room are thankful because their hearts have been reworked by your word and they're thankful to be able to sit under your word today. Thankful that you care about us, that you do not allow suffering into our lives for purposeless causes or having no reason for it to come into our lives. God, we thank you for the goodness of your promises, the reward that will be ours in Christ Jesus upon the last breath that we take. We thank you for the instruction for how to live in this world, very practically, how to renew our minds, how to recalibrate our consciences. God, we pray that you would protect us from wanting to tip the scales always in our favor based on our current cultural understanding of truth and goodness and beauty. Oh God, would you use your word to remind us of the eternal nature of your goodness, of your truth, of your beauty, and how that that's all come to a perfect crystallizing climax in the gospel of Jesus, the death, burial, 
resurrection, ascension of Christ. I pray that as we move on from this worship service and into the Lord's table, we have great gratitude for what Christ has done for us on our behalf, and that we would eat the bread and drink the cup in a worthy manner. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.